0: Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us and into our hearts. And Father, I pray this morning that you would relieve us from religion. And that you would free us from some of the chains that we have developed ourselves over time. Some of the chains that we have assumed and and slung over our own shoulders in our personal lives, Father. Some of the chains that have been passed on to us in traditions and, and denominational backgrounds. Pray, Father, You will free us from all of that. Just, just, Lord, to run wild in the field of grace. Knowing, Lord, that You have the fences well in place, that You have our security. Knowing that even as we run, that our Father has His eye on us. Would You free us, Father, just from all these entanglements? All the religion. Lord, the religion that that causes us to be fearful, the religion that causes us even, Father, to sin. I ask, Lord, for a paradigm shift, a change in perspective as to how we look at You. And I pray you'll do it in a matter of moments. Change our hearts that we can walk once again with our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The way we pray speaks volumes about our understanding of the kind of relationship we have with God. The words we use, the phrases, the the way we approach the Lord in prayer really does... Express what we think and how we feel and the life that we live as followers of Jesus. Imagine meeting someone you've wanted to meet for the very first time, but instead of talking to them, you rattle off a prepared statement. Or think about calling up a friend, someone you love dearly on the phone, but when they answer, you sit there in awkward silence because you feel ill-equipped to say the right words. <coughs> I don't want to offend. I want to be sure that what I say to you, as we talk here on the phone, is, is appropriate, so give me a minute. Or, or worse, you call up someone who you haven't talked to in a while and you can't say anything because you feel guilty because you haven't called them up to talk to them in a while. It's the religion of prayer, and it makes no sense. And yet, that's how so often we will approach God. Lord, it's been a while, or Lord, I, oh, I just can't do this or fearful to even speak out because I think we've been taught or have assumed a procedural, ceremonial, ritualistic, distant approach to God. There's a word for that. Religion. There's another word for that. Paganism. I'm not saying if you've grown up in organized religion that you're automatically a pagan. But I have to ask this question. What's your relationship with God like today? Not what's your religion Not how much do you know, not how much do you have in your head. What is your relationship like with God? How do you see Him? How do you approach Him? I was talking with Billy Ledbetter. We were driving down to Freeland the other day and had had some time just to, to chat. And he was sharing with me that he loves to sing, but he sings bass. He's got, again, like Mike, he's got that deep, low voice. But he loves to sing the melody. And so, in the church that he was attending, where the singing was was all a cappella, instead of singing the bass part, which was the appropriate and correct part for him to be singing at his vocal level, he's singing the melody, but he's singing it low. And he said, and I kid you not, a guy sitting behind him tapped him on the shoulder. And in the middle of singing, Billy turned around, and the guy said, If you can't sing it right, don't sing at all. Welcome to church. <laughs> well, pardon me, Pavarotti. <laughs> Psalm 98.4 says in the King James, and I love this translation, it's, very, it's right on, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It doesn't say sing well, it just says make a noise. All the earth make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. The Hebrew word for noise there is ruah, which means to shout, sound off, or blast. Make a blast unto the Lord. And I'll tell you, I don't know who that guy was who said that, but he was way off. And his very words spoke judgment of his relationship with God in that moment. If you can't sing right, don't sing. For crying out loud. Humanity has this absurd tendency to turn joy into jargon. We turn relationship into rhetoric. We turn rejoicing into rote. We make it this this thing where it's got to be dressed up and perfect and and none of us can get there. And so we sit in guilt, feeling like, man, I I can't quite get there. And regardless of where you've grown up, my sense is you probably have a little bit of that baggage. For some of you it's a handbag. For others it's like one of those big rolling suitcases with the wheels that you can barely carry. For others you're Renting storage units. I don't know. We all have <laughs> some of this religious baggage that gets in there. And I am, I am so convinced that we, we have to in the Lord. Well, we don't have to. We're asking the Lord to find a way to get that stuff off of our backs. And out of our lives. It amazes me how much time we truly need to spend as Christians getting rid of the stuff that we were fed i tell you what, anything other than the Word of God that you were fed, let it go. Now, Christians weren't the first down this road. The pagan religions historically are known for relying on rhetoric and repetition in prayer. And sadly, by the time of Jesus, that influence was prevalent among the Jewish people as well. It was not how the Jewish people were taught to pray, but when Jesus came on the scene, this was how they were praying. Set times and set liturgies. 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. were prayer times. You could call it Eastern Standard Prayer Time in Israel because those were the three times a day that a righteous, holy person had to pray. Make sure you're on time. They followed set liturgies like the Shema, which was never intended as a liturgy. The Shema, which simply in Hebrew means here, is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And a good Jew would would pray that prayer twice a day, before nine in the morning and and before nine in the evening. This statement of a call to loving God was turned into a religious prayer by rote. Can you imagine saying the Shema twice a day, every day, all your life? At what point do you think you would kind of drop off the relationship and drop into the religion. Oh, did I say the Shema? It's 5 to 9. Here it is where the Lord the God, the Lord is one, and with, the Lord, the God, and with all your heart and mind. Okay, good. Got it. They prayed the Shimoneth Eshrah. The Shimoneth Esherah, it means the 18 prayers, and Jewish children, even today, are taught to memorize the Shimoneth. Now, they've added so there's actually 19 prayers now, but it was originally the 18 prayers. Shimoneth means the 18. And they would pray these every day. Rabbi Gamaliel, the one under whose feet Paul sat and learned, he taught that a man must recite the Shimoneth every single day. These 18 prayers had to be recited daily. Now, Rabbi Akiba came along and said if a man could speak fast, he could say the entire 18. But if he was a slow talker, an abridged version was okay. And off we go into this pattern of religion. One of the 18 prayers reads the following. Blessed be thou, O Lord our God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the great God, powerful, tremendous, a high God, bountiful, dispensing benefits, the creator, the possessor of the universe, who remembers the good deeds of our fathers, and nowhere in that prayer a single time does someone say, blessed be you, my God. It's all God of my fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and I'm not... Shunning that, I'm not saying it's not right to pray that or recognize or acknowledge that. But these original authors, no doubt they meant well, but the prayers would tend to make you feel more distant from God than closer to Him. And while man is doing the pushing away, distancing religion, God is saying, Come on, come on. I want you close to Me. I want to drop all the falsehoods. Let's be in relationship together. The Talmud taught that all a man had to do to be heard was to keep repeating a number of these prayers. Just repeat them. Just repeat them. Keep repeating them. Repeat the prayers. And Jesus said in Matthew 6-7, When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Of course, six hundred years after Jesus came on the scene, you know, Muhammad arrived, teaching his followers the same kind of pagan, repetitious religious repertoire. Here's a common Muslim prayer. O God, O God, O God, O God, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O mortal, O mortal, O immortal, O immortal, O creator of the heavens and the earth. O oh, eternal, O oh, eternal, O oh, eternal, O oh, eternal. I'd have to turn the volume down if I was God. I mean wouldn't that just imagine being the Lord how boring over and over and over repetitious repetitious you know you won't find a single command anywhere in scripture for repetitious prayer pray this till you're blue in the face and maybe I'll listen he never says that Perhaps that's why the words of Jesus are as fresh and relevant today as they were when He first spoke them because Jesus doesn't speak religion. Jesus speaks relationship. Jesus is one who would say, let's walk together. Let's hang out together. Let's be real with one another. I don't agree with everything St. Augustine said and wrote. I think he was way off on several things. But there's one thing he said that I heard years ago and it stuck with me. Augustine said, true whole prayer is nothing but love. And I think he got that right. This morning I want to go back to the Mount one more time to sit together at the Rabbi's feet, Rabbi Yeshua, and listen to his teaching on how to pray. Traditionally it's called the Lord's Prayer, although if you are here Wednesday night, you know, we've renamed that It's the Disciples' Prayer. It's not a prayer that Jesus prays. Jesus doesn't need to pray for forgiveness. This is a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. In fact, later on, a couple of years after this, the disciples are sitting with him, and one of them will say, in, in the book of Luke, they'll say, "Lord, teach us to pray." I believe it's in Luke 11. "Lord, teach us to pray." And so the Lord will go on and repeat the same prayer, not repetitiously, but he'll share once again this prayer that he shares in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples' prayer. I would fix that in your minds. Not the Lord's Prayer. The Disciples' Prayer. And it's far more than a religious exercise, although many of us learned it that way. This is a paradigm shift. It's a powerful model of how to approach, approach the Father in relationship. So I want to walk through this that way, with that in mind, and think through this prayer with me, if you will. Verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then in this way, Our Father. And this is where Jesus begins. He begins... If you want to jot down some notes, he begins recognizing the person of our Father. And by the way, if you take notes today, would you do me a favor? Would you learn from them and then throw them away and not use them in your daily prayer life? Okay, because then we'll mess up the whole thing. The person of our Father. The Hebrew equivalent of this word is Abba. The Jewish child's word for Daddy. Now, I shared midweek the Hebrew Scriptures uh, showed that I could find only two specific references to God being called a Father. Both of those reference the line of David. I did a little more exhaustive search and realized there were five, not two. So I apologize for that. But reading on, let me give you these verses. Isaiah 9, six, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Which is interesting because that indicates the Messiah would be called Father. Jesus would be called Father. Well, how's that possible? Well, because He's God, just as God is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 16 says, For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are the potter and all of us are the work of Your hand. It's interesting that four out of five of these verses are in the book of Isaiah, which is the Messianic prophet. I mean, he's the one who's talking about Jesus. And suddenly this is beginning to come out. This use of the word Father as applied to God. Now, Psalm 89, verse 26, referring to David, says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So we have five references here to God as Father. But aside from one reference to David alone, not one of these involves an individual calling God their Abba. Not one of them. Now there are two more references that are worth noting. Not where God is called Father, but where He's described as being like a father. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the father has compassion on those who fear him. And then Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And the Hebrew writer picks up on that in Hebrews chapter 12. Repeating that, saying, hey, even if you're struggling, sometimes God is just disciplined, but He does it because He loves like a father. So the idea of God as a father, this concept of God as father is there in the Hebrew Scriptures, but Jesus comes along and kicks it out the gate. He he opens it wide open. He calls God Father 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. And from this point on, this will be Jesus' favorite designation for the Lord God, the Almighty, Adonai, Elohim. No, He calls Him... Father, Abba, my dad. It's not Yahweh, not El El Yon or El Shaddai or El Roy or El Olam, all of which are wonderful and perfectly fitting names for God. Jesus doesn't refer to God as Hashem, which is the Jewish designation for God today, the name. Because out of respect, and I honor this, out of respect the Jewish people say, we don't even want to speak the name. You know what's missing there? What's missing is that Jesus came saying, I want you to speak my name. I want you to have that kind of relationship. The day is coming, my friends, when the Jewish people will no longer refer to God as Hashem. They will refer to Him as Yeshua. And they will love Him as such. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes for not even the Father judges anyone but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him no wonder Jesus came in the position of a Son have you ever thought about that? that when Jesus showed up we see Him we hear Him talked about He expresses Himself as Son of God why if He is God does He call Himself Son of God? partially gang, because He wants us to understand that relationship That that is the relationship that we are called into. Children of our Father. And so, as this prayer opens up, Jesus isn't saying, pray this way. Our Father. He says, pray this way. Dad. Dad, Abba. Our Father. Now some might say, wait a minute. Did God change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I mean, suddenly, if He's only referenced just a handful of times, he's not really ever inviting the people to call Him Father in the Old Testament, what? Did, he, did He change? No. As Les shared this morning, God is unchanging. He didn't change. We did. And we changed because of what He did. John one twelve as many as received Him, to Him He, the, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Paul said in Romans 8.15, "...For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father." And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And so before you even speak another word in prayer... Jesus says, begin by recognizing who you're praying to, your Father. Our Father. He's the person to whom we pray. Verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. (coughs) Secondly, Jesus points out the position of our Father. And by the way, this is not protocol. Jesus is not establishing diplomatic etiquette for some foreign dignitary when we address God. It's not protocol, it's truth. Our Father is in heaven. It's where He is, but it's not just locational, it's also positional. Psalm 8, one says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. Psalm 113, verse 4, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? And as Leticia D'Angelo used to say, when she first came over here and began to recognize Jeff as, as her dad, she would say, that's a my daddy. That's a my daddy. And so when I approach God as my father, I'm saying, not only is he my father, but he's in the heavens. i got a big dad. You want to mess with me? You talk to him. You want to deal with me? You deal with him. You see, a couple of things begin to happen when I recognize not only the person, the fatherness of God in our relationship, but also the position. My prayers begin as God centered and not man centered. I don't start out saying, Lord, I'm just having a terrible week this week, and I need you to come down and do my thing because it's me, me, mom, me, my, my, mo, me, me. You know, it's not a me thing. Our Father. Who is in heaven? If you read through this prayer, Jesus does something interesting. He goes on talking about our Father. He talks about Your name, Your kingdom, Your will. The first half of this prayer is all about Father. It's all centered on God. Psalm 143.10 Reads, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We've talked about before, and I won't go into it this morning, but the Hebrew mindset versus the Greek mindset. We are of the Greek mindset. That is the influence. The Greco Roman mindset has greatly influenced Western culture to where we are man centered. It is all about us. It's all about what's going on in our lives or what my needs are. It's a very, very selfish approach to living. The Hebrew mindset is God-centered, which believes it really doesn't matter what's going on with us. What matters is what's going on with Him. That He's at the center of all things, and we are going this direction into where He is, as opposed to calling Him down to where we are. When I recognize the position of my Father in heaven, my prayer begins as God-centered. And my prayers then become God-committed. Jesus says, Your name, Your kingdom, Your will. The last half of the prayer, He says, Give us, forgive us, deliver us. It's committing everything to Him, whether it's my provision, or my forgiveness, or my deliverance. It's all in His hands. And it's all in His hands because I began recognizing who He is and what His position is. And it puts me in the right place. Peter said, Humble yourselves, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. The person of my Father and the position of my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus directs us to the priorities of our Father. There are three of them. Three priorities, His name, His kingdom, His will. The priority of his name, verse nine, he goes on. He says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed, good word. A little religious, wish they had just gone with what the word is. Hagiasmus in the Greek holy. Holy is your name. We saying this morning, Holy, holy, holy. Revelation four eight Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, and who is to come. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Of course, his name is holy. Because all his name is, is an expression of his character. Something else that we've lost in our culture is that names speak of character. Names were chosen in Hebrew culture because of the character of the person, or the character that the, the parents hoped possibly the person would have. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 7. The Lord says, My holy name I will make known in the midst of My people Israel. And I will not let My holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Now you might ask, okay, if He knows He's holy, and if we know He's holy, why are we saying holy is your name? Isn't that kind of redundant to the Lord who already knows and to we who already know? Listen carefully. It's not holy is your name. It's holy be your name. You are praying that God be recognized as holy. When we approach our Father who is in heaven, we're saying, your name be holy. It's not a declaration, it's a consideration. May your name be treated as holy rather than be profaned. First concern for a follower of the Lord, first concern is that His name in this world is not profaned, but is lifted up, is honored, is glorified. That it's not a common curse word. It blows my mind how often the name of God in various forms is tossed around even in Christianity as a curse word or, or as profanity. Do you ever get tired of it? Ever just get tired of God's name being used as profanity in the world? Pray against it. Jesus invites us to. Holy be Your name. We're praying for that point in time when the whole world recognizes the holiness Of the name of God. When at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'll tell you what, no one's going to be profaning the name in that day or in that moment. How do you treat the name of God? Just pause and think about that for a moment in your own language, in your own life. How do you treat the name of God with honor and respect and dignity? Or is His name so common that you just toss it about without even thinking about it? God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, The third commandment, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes His name in vain. And it's not just the letters of the name. It's not just the G-O-D or or the Y-H-W-H of Yahweh, of Hebrew writing. It's what His name represents to you. It's understanding the character, the glory, the compassion, the love. And you know what? That's personal. That's personal. I, I believe I shared before a couple of years ago that I didn't really care so much when kids made fun of me in elementary school, but when they made fun of my last name, Crawford, and they changed the last half of it so you can imagine all kinds of fun stuff, it offended me, not because of me, but because that was my dad's name. And I remember one day getting really upset because someone was making fun of this name and and I I said to them, I said, this is not even my name you're making fun of. It's my dad's name. Knock it off. When was the last time you got upset because someone threw out God's name and profaned it instead of honoring it? Pray against that. Holy be your name. If I approach God as my heavenly Father... Treating His name in a way that is holy and personal, then His name becomes a priority for me as much as it's a priority for Him. Second priority here is His kingdom. His kingdom. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. And by the way, you stop right there. I know it's nice to rhyme, your will be done on earth, but stop. Your kingdom come. If there is one thing a true citizen of the kingdom longs for, it's the kingdom It's the coming kingdom. There's one thing that we we look forward to. I'm a citizen, gang, of the kingdom. I am not a citizen. Listen, I'm not a citizen of the United States. Well, I've got a U.S. passport. And I was born here. But my citizenship is not of this country. My citizenship is not of this world. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. When I gave my life to Jesus, He stamped my visa, Citizen. Natural born by a new birth into Jesus. I am a citizen of the kingdom and I am living in a foreign country longing for home. Your kingdom come. Do you pray that? Are you, are you excited just by the thought of that? That the kingdom of God is on the way. I knew when the Northwest had gotten under my skin. It was when we moved away from here to Virginia. Cheryl and I got to live here for three years back in the late 80s. I did youth ministry, my first youth ministry, down in Federal Way, Washington. And then we moved to a new exciting thing in Virginia, and I was amazed at how much I missed. Not California, the place I had grown up, but Washington State. I longed to come back here. Sure and I would watch Sleepless in Seattle just to see some of the scenery. And we missed it. And it it got under my skin. And even when we then moved from Virginia back to California, and I was back in my home country at the beach and hanging out with my friends and doing the things that I knew so well, I still, in the back of my mind, I thought, man, I just, I loved living up there. I loved living in the Northwest. I never thought God would provide the opportunity to move back here. I point that out simply to, to ask this question Is the kingdom under your skin? Do you think about it? Do you pray for its coming? Do you long for that day? Remember, our Father promised David the eternal kingdom. Our guest speaker last week talked about that. Psalm 132, verse 1, Lord, remember David. I hope you enjoyed that, by the way. What an excellent teacher Ron Allen is. Lord, remember David. Psalm 132, verse 1. And in verse 11 of that same chapter, the Lord has sworn in truth to David He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon the throne. Gain for me... For me, praying your kingdom come is the most exciting thing I pray. And it's the one thing, almost more than anything else, that kind of lifts me up in encouragement into the place of hope. Your kingdom come. And third, the priority of His will. Priority of His name, priority of His kingdom. And third, priority of His will. Verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul calls the will of God that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. And yet our will has a tendency to go head to head with His. We tend to to beat our heads against the wall of His will, against the power of His will. We fight His will for all we're worth, kind of like children not realizing that our Father really does know what He's doing. Our Lord really does know how to drive the car, even though we're just getting our license and sometimes think we know more than He does. (laughs) just want to let it sink in you know the whole concept there by the way what, what is the will of the Father John 6.40 says this is the will of the Father Jesus speaking he says that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life that's good news not world dominion Clashing the universe, taking authority and control. Jesus says the will of the Father is that you look at the Son, believe in Him, and get saved. He says the will of the Father is that I myself will raise Him up in the last day. People think the will of God is to play the, the cosmic sheriff, you know, who's just waiting for us to mess up. That's not God's will. God's will is your salvation, my salvation through His Son. He really does want what's best for us. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but something's happening here as we pray with Jesus, recognizing the person of our Father and the position of our Father and the priorities of our Father, the focus of our praying still has not even gotten to us. We're not talking about us. It's all about Him. It's His kingdom, His will, His name. And Jesus says, pray like that. If we even the first half of our prayers began this way and centered in and focused completely on Him, it would change everything for us. By the way, John Calvin pointed out that this prayer really does divide in half. The first half being focused on the glory of God and the second half being the petitions or the needs of man. Just like the Ten Commandments. It's almost an identical parallel. The Ten Commandments speak of the glory of God in the first half. And the last half of the Ten Commandments speak all about how man is to treat each other and the needs of man as brought before the Lord. Why is that? Because God's glory is the priority, and yet, and yet, He loves us. He's a Father, and He is concerned about our needs. Verse 11, Jesus goes on and says, Give us this day our daily bread. That's the provision of the Father. The provision. The person of the Father... The position of the Father, the priorities of the Father. Now number four, the provision of the Father. People have attempted to assign, by the way, this daily bread to all kinds of things. love to grab a hold of things and allegorize it. I mentioned not agreeing with Augustine simply because Augustine was one of the first ones in the Alexandria school there in the Middle East. He was one of the first ones along with men like Origen who began to allegorize Scripture. Because historically things were changing at that time. Historically, suddenly the church was not being persecuted. Suddenly it was in bed with the state. Suddenly now there's a new connection and, and we're growing and we're becoming strong and, and we're having great influence on politics. And so Augustine, among others, came along and started saying, well, then this has to be allegory. Because some of the stuff that's talked about is future tense. We're, 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 we're doing so much better than this. <laughs> So things began to change and the thinking began to change. Some of them believed that, um, by the way, that was a side note, some believed that Jesus was talking about the bread of communion. Give us this day our daily bread. And so we need to take communion every day. Let's be sure and do that. Write that down on the list of liturgy that we need to follow. Take communion every single day. I don't think he's talking about the bread of communion when he says give us this day our daily bread. Others believe he's talking about the bread of the Word of God. Oh, okay, well that sounds good, because Jesus did say man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't think that's it either. In fact, I don't think there's anything allegorical or religious about what Jesus is saying here. I think he's just talking about bread. Give us our bread give us our ham sandwich today at lunch. Give us our taco bell at dinner time. Our daily provision. Sometimes we can over religiosize things. (laughs) We can make it too much. And it's not. It's simply, give me my daily bread today. You might say, well, that sounds awfully unspiritual in the middle of this very spiritual prayer, Rick. And I would say, Jesus is teaching us a total, radical, ultimate dependence on our Father for everything, even our next meal. Do we think that way? That's funny, with the economic downturn and everything going on, Friday I was driving home and I popped into Jack in a Box and I got a cheeseburger and headed home just like I normally would. Well, everybody's saying, the dollar's falling. And I know I know it's bad, I understand that. We haven't really yet felt it, I don't think, on Main Street. But I'm just having my cheeseburger. And I thought, you know, God provided my cheeseburger today. He gave me my daily cheeseburger. And I appreciate that. My provision is His. One commentator said, used in the morning, this petition would ask for bread for the day just beginning. Used in the evening, which would be more Jewish in thinking, to pray this in the evening, which is the beginning of the next day, it would pray for tomorrow's bread. But the bottom line is this. Live your life, hear me on this, live your life one day at a time. One day at a time. I was counseling someone just... Just this last week in crisis, and I realize how often I say to someone who is in crisis, this very thing: just deal with today. As Jesus said in in chapter seven, fact, chapter six, verse thirty-four, He said, "Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you deal with today, and and that's comforting when we're in crisis. Just handle today. Can can you deal with today? Most of us can. I can get through today. Till my head hits the pillow. It's tomorrow that freaks me out. Well, Jesus says, okay, when you pray, say, give us today's bread. Not, you know, stack my cupboards for the weekend. Not give me my two weeks of groceries, Lord. Not provide me my Costco month's worth. Just today. Give me my provision today. How far out are you living? Are you living for today? Are you living next week? Next month? Next year? Your retirement? How far out are you living? I really believe this. It's taken me a while to get here. I believe that the most godly, most God-centered way to live life is one day at a time. doesn't mean you don't plan, but it means you don't worry. Because God is the one who's going to give you what you get. and It doesn't matter where it comes from. Whether it's your salary or, or help from friends or, or whatever. Or your retirement. It doesn't matter where. God's the provider. Yeah, but Rick, you don't understand. With everything that's happening in the country, I've lost half of what I put into my savings. God knows. He's still going to provide for you. Give us today our daily bread. It's living hand to mouth. His hand to my mouth. And James wrote in James 4.13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a village or city and spend time there. Spend a year there. Engage in business and make a profit. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. You know what he's saying? He's saying you're gas. (laughs) He is. You're here and you're gone. And there are those around you who would go... (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you're gone you know, we're just a vapor James says instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and also do this or that today's bread not give us tomorrow our daily, give us today our daily bread verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors the pardon of the father the pardon of the father As indispensable as food is for the health of the body, so forgiveness is for the health of both the soul and the spirit. As we forgive, we are healed, gang. As we forgive, we recognize forgiveness. We need forgiveness every single day. And we need to give forgiveness every single day. It's the most spiritual, healthy thing you can do. And this aspect of prayer is so important, Jesus picks up on it after concluding the prayer, saying in verse 14, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And by the way, this is not a salvation discussion here. It's kind of a new thought for me, that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the disciples' sermon where the Lord is talking to citizens of the kingdom. And he's describing citizens of the kingdom. And he's saying, those of you who walk in this, you are citizens. You are saved people. So the forgiveness he's talking about in 14 and 15 is not about forgiveness for your eternal salvation. If you don't forgive others, you're damned to hell. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. In other words, your stuff is going to stick. It's going to hang on. If you can't let it go for them, your Father's going to allow it to sit on you. And it's unhealthy, and it brings about things like bitterness, and frustration, anger, and religion. Can I get forgiveness if I refuse to give forgiveness? Let's put it this way if you refuse to forgive, you just don't get forgiveness. Get it? You just don't get forgiveness if you refuse to forgive. You don't understand it. If you and I, if we refuse to forgive, we don't understand what God has done. We have missed the forgiveness He's already given us. If I am a forgiving person, I get forgiveness. I understand it. It makes sense to me. John Stott said, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. Man, if I get His forgiveness, I'm so much more able to forgive we talked about just a couple weeks back the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house remember she showed up there Simon religiously invites the rabbi to come to his house he's going to check him out and kind of shake him down and find out what makes Jesus tick and in comes this sinful woman how we you know how Simon knew she was sinful we don't know but he did who is this sinful woman? you know if you knew if he even knew who this woman was and you remember what she did she comes in weeping She falls at Jesus' feet. Her tears are pouring out all over his feet, which are still dirty because Simon did not provide water to wash his feet when he came in, which was a slap in the face in the culture. And she's weeping on his feet, and she notices that his feet are all wet, so she starts taking her hair and drying his feet with her hair. I mean, this is very embarrassing. It's very strange. And then she pulls out perfume and begins anointing his feet. Simon's watching all this and he is absolutely shocked. And in Luke chapter 7, let me just read this to you. Luke chapter 7, verse 40, Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. (laughs) A moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other who owed 50 denarii, and denarii was a day's wage. So a guy owed 500 days of back pay and another owed 50 days when they were unable to repay he graciously forgave them both so which of them will love him more my answer is the one who got forgiveness the one who understood it simon said i suppose the one whom he forgave more and he said to him you judge correctly and turning toward the woman he said to simon do you see this woman i entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And you're going to meet that woman someday. Because she's home. She got forgiveness. And I absolutely guarantee, I have no proof of this, but I can guarantee that the rest of her life she had no problem forgiving other people's offenses against her because she recognized how much she had been forgiven. Are you getting the sense of the practicality and uh, and life of this kind of praying? That this is relational praying. It's not about religious road. It really does bring us closer to the Father, closer to each other. It's a lifestyle Jesus is talking about here. And the final petition of this beautiful prayer is absolutely powerful. Verse 13, He says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Literally there, it should say the evil one. Delivers from the evil one. So number six, the protection of the Father. Pray the protection of the Father. He gives your daily provision. He forgives you in a daily pardon. And now Jesus says, petition the Father for deliverance. For your daily protection. Now understand, God does not lead anyone into temptation. When Jesus says, do not lead us into temptation, He's not talking about something that God might possibly do. And He's asking Him not to. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. And Jesus is not indicating that God might lead someone into temptation. Remember, this is not the Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. It's a model of how we are to pray. So it's prayer from our perspective to the Lord. And the reality is, as long as we're in the flesh and in this world, Jesus knows we're going to be tempted. Temptation is there. And he's asking then, he's saying, pray to the Lord, keep me back from temptation. In fact, that word, lead us there, can also be used as a word to hold back. Keep me back from temptation. Psalm 19.13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. That's what we're saying. The reality is we're weak, and so Jesus prays against temptation. Lord, just keep me back from it. Don't let me get in that place where it could happen. If I'm driving down the road and you know a temptation is ahead, put a detour sign right there so I go the other direction so I don't land in that place where I'm going to be tempted. Lord, keep me away from temptation. One of the best things we can choose to do about sin in our lives is not go to the places where sin can happen. I had a great talk with a a good friend of mine just uh, yesterday. And we were talking about Cheryl's and my marriage. And this friend of mine is single. And as we're talking about it, I was just sharing with him what I've shared with you before, that Cheryl and I are never, ever, ever alone with someone of the opposite sex. Well, my daughter. You yeah. got a buy on that one and my mother-in-law on occasion. But no other women. So, so ladies, if you need counseling and you need to talk to me, I won't do it one-on-one. I'll do it with Cheryl there or with someone else present. Why is that? Is it because Rick is a sick, psycho, lusting, you know? No, it's not. It's not an issue for me. I have a great marriage. I love my wife. It's solid. It's secure. I don't even want to go to a place where more could happen, where something could happen. Keep me back from temptation. What is the temptation in your life you're struggling with? Pray, Lord, keep me back from it. Is there something that goes on in your head when you're listening to certain kinds of music? Keep me back from it. Are there visuals that stimulate you in a way you shouldn't be? Keep me back from it. Are there relationships that are unhealthy for you? Keep me back from it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think it's interesting in John 17, 15, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He wants us in the world. Light is needed in the world. The Spirit working in us The world needs this because Father is still trying to save some of His kids. But don't let us be tempted. Keep us back from the evil one. In these three petitions, provision, pardon, and protection, Jesus taps into something awesome. Check this out. These three areas, Jesus gives us a reminder of the Trinity. The Trinity of God. It's through the Father's providence that we receive our daily bread. Father provides that for us. It's through the Son's sacrificial death that we can even ask for forgiveness. Jesus provides that for us. It is through the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our life that we are protected from the evil one. Daily bread, forgiveness, deliverance, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is at work in your life and mine. No wonder some of the ancient manuscripts include this statement, for yours is the kingdom. That would be Jesus. And the power, that would be the Spirit. And the glory, which is the Father's forever. Amen. This is a great pattern of prayer. But you know what I find curious? Aside from Matthew, and an even briefer version in Luke, this prayer is not repeated, it's not referred to a single time in the whole rest of the New Testament. Furthermore, historically speaking, this prayer was not prayed religiously by the first century church. There is no record of them even referring to the Lord's Prayer. Why is that? Because they understood it wasn't religion. This was relationship. This was a model Jesus gives of how to approach the Father and walk with Him. I don't believe Jesus ever intended this to be a religious thing. Ever. The disciples' prayer is in reality a prayer of preoccupation. It's prayed by someone who is so preoccupied with God that he is the entire focus. I, I like that word, preoccupation. You, you almost can see someone nudging you going, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Because you're off over here. What are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, I was just thinking about Jesus. i <laughs> kind of preoccupied. I can't get him off of my mind. He's all I think about. Every line Every thought preoccupied with God, His kingdom, His will, His name, and my dependence on Him. This is what Jesus has given us. More access to a relationship with the Father. Let's pray. Father, You you are great and holy, and we love You, Lord. From time to time, and I appreciate this, Father, I I just get this picture of us all sitting around on the carpet in the great living room with You on the easy chair and kneeling over, talking to us, laughing with us, sharing. And Lord, we want so desperately, even if we don't realize it, we want You as our Father. We want that relationship. We want, Father, to walk away from religion and the the pagan mentality that just sets people at a distance from a God. I want to be close to You. Father, I pray that You will change our lives so that we will walk with You this way, that we will just be Your kids. And Lord, I pray, would You keep an eye on our behavior and redirect us And Father, all we are belongs to You. So thank You for this. Thank You for this morning. And redirect us now on the right path, path of relationship with You, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.